Well, when I was a teenager in my church, a fellow youth group leader excitedly told me that there was an ATM in town at the ANZ Bank which had $50 notes seemingly in the $20 note dispenser. If you request $60, $150 comes out and you're debited $60. After working that out, he went back a few times and came out hundreds of dollars ahead and came to me and told me excitedly about it. Now, we're all built guilty of a bit of greed. It probably doesn't matter, right, if a youth group leader does this. We're saved by grace And isn't our whole message about God's love and grace to the kids that he's leading? God will forgive and forget, won't he? Can you see the problem if there aren't some clear counter-messages to this wonderful message of grace in the Bible? Another memory, as a teenager, a friend from church uh, confidently explained to a group of teenagers around him that he regularly gets drunk, and he gets drunk to the glory of God, as he put it. Enjoying his freedom as a Christian. Another senior youth had sexual relationships with a girlfriend, outside church hours, of course. Hmm, saved by grace. Yes, but something is going terribly wrong when God's grace is being mocked, trampled upon when God's patience is being put to the test, when the Lord Almighty is treated more like a harmless puppy, powerless in his battle against sin for us whenever we pull out our saved-by-grace card, our handy license to sin. It raises a good question, I think, that affects all of us. How much sin is too much for us as a church? Or perhaps to put it a healthier way, How is the church to think about sin? Well, so far in the book of Acts, the apostles have preached the saving news of Jesus, and as people have repented from their sin and put faith in Jesus, the church has been rapidly growing. Last week, we saw the church growing even through external pressure and persecution and attempts to silence this gospel. But what happens when the threat comes from within? I think that's where it goes next in Acts. What about an insider? What about yeast that uh, threatens to spoil the whole batch of dough? What happens when Satan and sin threaten to ruin God's holy new community from within? Will that stop the gospel? Will that stop God's purposes for the church? And so again, the big question, I think, is how is the church to think about sin? Well, firstly, in verses 1 and 2, we see that sin can seem pretty harmless, What strikes me here about Ananias and Sapphira's sin is how much good there is in their actions and how understandable their actions are from a fellow sinner's perspective, how common similar sins might be in our church and churches around the world. We see they were both uh, we see they were both in on their plan to donate what was probably a large amount of money to the church community, as others had been doing at the end of chapter four. In the last verse of chapter 4, Barnabas, we read, sold a field, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Wonderful sign of the Spirit's work in a believer. It's quite outstanding. How generous that is. A property is usually either inherited or hard-earned, and rarely something given away in any period or culture. What this prototype Christian community were doing was staggering. 
They put their money where their faith is. Money followed faith in God, and it was beautiful. And we've seen some of that beauty here in, at DPC over the past year. But things turn ugly in verse 2. And by verse 5, the big donor will be dead. What has just happened? One person said to me this week in discussion about this passage, God is gracious, but here God seems really strict. What's going on? Another, God seems to be keeping us on our toes or wanting us to live on our toes, living nervously, perhaps. Is that what God wants? Let's have a look together at verses 1 to 2. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Many details aren't recorded here. Like the big sin between Cain and Abel, you don't get a lot of detail, but it's big, catastrophic consequences. His wife Sapphira knows what's going on. Some of the proceeds are withheld for his own use. We can get that much. And he probably could have given this gift more discreetly if he wanted to. I wonder if he was feeling like the chair of a company does when he gives one of those oversized checks. Cameras rolling, the world watching on. Watch us as we're just like Barnabas who did the same thing. It's hard to live for an audience of one, don't you find? If you're like me, you find it hard to stop yourself seeking credit for things or to intervene when more credit is being given than what might be due. Oh, stop it, we say, while quietly happy if they don't. Interestingly, the crime punishable by death isn't described in any real detail. If we could have a recording of the crime, it might be as tame as, here are the proceeds from our property sale. Use it for the spread of the kingdom. But under the exposing light, in the crucible of God's holiness, even such a statement would fail the integrity test. If only he'd said, here is part of the proceeds. No alarm would sound. But no, Ananias' pride meant he wanted recognition for giving his everything. But his self-interest meant he didn't want to give everything. And so just a touch of deceit is going to make it all work. Look like he's giving everything without giving everything. We also aren't told how Peter knew what was going on, but somehow Peter smells a rat. Many a church today, I think, would be tempted to overlook this happily. Don't upset these platinum givers. They might change their mind. Just put their name on a brick and stop asking questions. Well, self-interest clouds the ethics of both givers and receivers, doesn't it? And many a cathedral has been built on dirty money. So again, what's the question? What's the problem? No human organisation is perfect after all. A bit of sin in every church is inevitable, lots of sin even. And so the occasional blind eye, sweeping a bit of malpractice under a carpet, especially if it won't hurt anyone, what's the problem with that? Well, we need to know what God thinks about all of this. And point two, in verses three to 11, I think helps us see that. That sin brings death, it sides with Satan, and it's against the Holy Spirit. When Peter the rock on which Christ will build his church 
sees a Christian robbing God of what he's claiming to be giving God, when he sees Ananias deliberately deceiving the body of Christ, well, the Holy Spirit living in Peter dwells up, flares up with burning bush, zero sin tolerance, a holy righteousness. And so his language is strong and it's grieving. Verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? I wonder if Peter says this in a knowing way. After all, the same righteous spirit who dwelled in Jesus said something very similar to Peter. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus said, oh, Peter. And now Peter is saying, oh, Ananias. And we might say, oh, David, oh, DPC. Don't you know whose you are? This gathering is not just a club, and God is not some weak deity. No, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, is a Spirit present in and filling the church and filling you. It is the Holy Spirit. Why is he given the name Holy Spirit? It's not used much in the Old Testament. I take it he's named the Holy Spirit for us so that we won't miss his particular interest in our holiness. If you know you are a temple filled with the Holy Spirit, what are you doing messing around with sin? How could you? In verse 4, Peter points out, no one forced you to give all that money, Ananias. You could have kept some or even all of it for yourself without a problem. But it's the lie. It's the deception. You wouldn't dare lie directly to God in his presence. Are you unaware that you are in his presence now? His presence never leaves you. Now, God is much closer to the ordinary church like ours than we think. See there in verse 4? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. He thought he was just deceiving other Christians. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Now, as an an important aside, these verses provide the clearest demonstration in the New Testament that the Spirit is not merely a force, an it, but the Spirit is a person. And it shows also very clearly that the Spirit is God. So the New Testament gives us no choice but to hold the view of the Trinity. The Spirit is personal and the Spirit is God. One God, three persons. Why does that matter that the Holy Spirit is personal? For one, it means Christians don't have part of God in us. God isn't divisible into parts. Beyond us, though, it is to grasp, Christians have the person of God in his fullness dwelling within us. In the Great Commission, the Lord Jesus said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And he wasn't joking. He meant more than we can grasp. God in his fullness will dwell within us. And yet sometimes in our trials, in our church life, our discouraging home group situation, 
we might feel like God is remote, disinterested in our little lives. But can you see how far from reality the doctrine of the Holy Spirit makes this? The person of God, the Spirit, is closer to us even than the physical Jesus was to any of his disciples. With us as we lie awake, sick and sore. With us in the sadness of a broken marriage. With us when we feel desperately lonely. Jesus reached human ears and eyes, but the Spirit reaches our hearts, our minds, even our spirits, whatever they are precisely. By his Spirit, God is personally, fully with us. And so can you see the more we grasp of God and his Holy Spirit, who we are and whose we are, and what the church is to God, the less tolerable any form of sin becomes. Saved by grace, yes, but saved by a holy God. We're saved by grace for holiness. There was nothing uniquely sinful about Ananias, I think. He may well have been a Christian who just acted foolishly. Could have been any of us. He just wanted people to think of him better than he was. And don't we all do that? I'll be praying for you. I'll keep you in prayer. It sounds good, but did we then pray as fervently as we might have indicated? Or was there an Ananias gap between display and delivery? It's so easy to do this and so common in different ways and forms. We tidy up before guests arrive because there's a gap between what we want to show and who we normally are. Facebook posts rarely speak of our shame and moral underperformance. But Christ wants to free us from the masks, from hiding ourselves, from our pretension, as we claim less of ourselves and unglamorously repent and believe our way through life. Hospitality, friendships, relationships, it all becomes easier. We're freed up much more. It becomes more enjoyable if we're not trying to give a false impression. But perhaps Ananias picked the wrong moment in church history to do what we all do. Not that it's ever justified, but the wages of sin rarely lead to sudden death. When God is publicly establishing the standards for his people, it seems a particularly dangerous time to cross him. Old Testament, New Testament. But in God's kindness to the church, and this passage is a passage about his grace, in his grace and kindness to the church, Ananias provides a vital case study for the church. He's the person we might think of when wondering if our sin matters. The ATM dispensing $20 bills. The Christian tempted by the bottle. The potential affair going on in one's mind. If we return to our question at the introduction, how much sin is okay, Ananias? Ananias cries, none. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is holiness important, Ananias? Ananias cries, yes. Uncomfortable though this may be, 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10 isn't good enough for the Christian or the church community. 
Well, what's the alternative to zero, zero tolerance? Is a bit of sin okay, the two out of ten, the three out of ten? We say no worries to that. A little bit of Satan is fine. Go for it. The occasional cutting someone down or poisoning the well of our community. A bit of denial, a bit of concealment of shameful practices. As long as the media don't find out, hush it up and move the offender on. Many a treasurer has ripped off their church. Many a song leader has led praises while having an affair. Many a Christian leader has terrorized wife and children. In one church I'm aware of, two regular churchgoers refused to talk to each other, not for weeks or months, but for decades, even awkwardly around a small morning tea table. Resentment, refusal to talk or forgive. Everyone in that town knew of their feud and could be excused for thinking, for viewing this church and their religion with contempt. One bold pastor brought it to a head with one of them who refused to talk to the other. He said, seek reconciliation or stop coming to this church. And please, until then, stop calling yourself a Christian. You are harming the reputation of Christ among all who know you. Ouch. But true. If God appears strict from time to time, protective of the church's purity... It may be because salvation is found in no other name but the name of Jesus. Acts 4 verse 12. The church of Jesus Christ is is the agent, the ambassador, the physical presence of Christ on earth. And so if the church's witness is damaged, tarnished, lost, the salvation of eternal souls is at stake. What matters more than the purity of the church? What matters more than the clarity of the gospel, our unity and prayerfulness and witness to our neighbours? Our triune God dares to identify himself with us. He honours his bride by attaching his holy name to it. And so it's best if we don't bear the name of uh, Jesus Christ, if we don't bear that with some weight, it's better we don't bear it at all if it avoids the weight of discipleship. I think Jesus is saying, you may call me saviour if and only if you call me Lord. And so, friends, we live with that come Lord Jesus tension of being simultaneously sinners and saints, don't we? I mean, this church would be very empty if there were no sinners here or if we'd all dropped dead yesterday for yesterday's performance. It means the life of repentance and faith isn't just our way into the Christian life, but it must also be the way on in the Christian life. We sin, and we're to do so humbly and repentantly. And we treat other sinners with much grace when they cross us and and sin against us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, says Jesus, those who know our need for God's sheer grace. What about Sapphira, verse 7? About three hours later, his wife came in, uh-oh, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Solidarity with her husband. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? 
wonder what might be going, what God might be bringing to your conscience when you meditate on that question. How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? How do you do that? Are you consumed by the world and giving God what's left? Or is God the reason you're in the world? Don't test his spirit. Are you a Christian Christian who has little inclination to spend time with fellow Christians? And so you don't actually love them in reality. Or a bit closer to the home of Ananias and Sapphira. Have heartstrings attached? Do you have heartstrings attached firmly to purse strings? where worldly longings and cultural norms are defying the word of God. Verse 9, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Some of our sin is um, accidental and spontaneous, but a lot of it is is well-seasoned sin and ingrained, a conspiring nature to it. Listen, verse 9, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. What do we do with a passage like that? Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who could stand? There's There's a certain severity here, a certain clarity of God's holy, righteous judgment. But as I said, it's also a passage of God's grace, how gracious God is to us, how we test him, and how patient he is. Our Father's grace, rightly understood, is to stir us not from obedience but towards it. Finally, point three, I want to leave with you, drawing from verse 11. DPC, revering God and pursuing holiness. Let's not make that a question, let's make it a statement. Verse 11, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I wonder if in Sydney evangelical churches there's not a great fear of the Lord going on. And so some of the complacency and and some of the church's struggles may well be related to that. But here, this great fear, this humble reverence for God is the place from which the individual, the family and church blessedness can happily exist. We saw at the end of chapter 4, there was great power, mega power. 4 verse 33. 4 verse 33, we saw there was mega, great grace in the church. And now the word in verse 11 of chapter 5 is great reverence, great fear. God's great power and great grace seem more at home where there is great reverence. Last week, I accidentally pulled out in front of a large oncoming four-wheel drive with Ashley and our four kids in the car. Our lives could have all changed that moment. Suddenly standing in our holy God's presence, my fleeting life over, my only claim before him being the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Friends, we aren't going to be spared God's judgment on the basis of our fruit. But let me say this. If there is no fruit, or if there is bad fruit, how can we presume 
that we actually have Christ and Christ's righteousness. I, my wife, my four children could have been standing before God last week. I want us to be clear about whose we are as a family. Today, tomorrow, it could be your turn. You will probably have the luxury of more time. Ananias and Sapphira didn't. But the lesson of their life was intended for us. That holiness really matters, eternally. And it matters right now. Well, let's pray. Our great and holy God, we thank you that by your spirit you've helped us to see sin more for what it is. Uh, Perhaps something we used to indulge in and enjoy, now something that uh, pulls at our conscience and something, Lord, we want to be struggling against. Father, we want to live a life of repentance and faith. We want to avoid a pretentious life, a false piety, putting on airs before you and each other. Forgive us, Lord, for the countless times we've done that. We recognise the wages of sin is death, that we deserve your condemnation every day of the week. But we praise your glorious grace. We live because of your mercy. And Father, we want that to make us all the more righteous, to be those who deeply appreciate your grace, those who are changed daily by it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.